like most PMs, I found myself in a situation of relatively high burnout, especially if you're a type A personality. There is always more work to do than you have capacity to do. And you feel like you need to do it all. And that's something that I really struggled with. And at a certain point, I think I declared PM bankruptcy, which is that I can't do all of these things. It's a common trait. And I think we beat ourselves up too much over this. One really important principle I set for myself is I'm just going to have to let some fires burn. Welcome to Product with Banash. I'm Axel, and in this show, I talk to product leaders and experienced operators across Europe and beyond. Together, we'll learn about their craft, how they build successful products, and unpack the frameworks and secrets they've used in delivering growth for their businesses. Today, I'm super excited to welcome Krish, who's currently VP product at Airbase, managing both the product and support teams. Previously, Krish was the chief product officer at Pipedrive, driving the transition from a single product to a multi-product company. Hi, Krish. How are you doing today? Hello. Hi, Axel. I'm great. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this recording for a while. Before we dive into today's topics, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and what have been some of the key phases of your career so far? Yeah, sure. I can give you my, probably like most PMs, this circuitous route into product management. I've been in the space for a while. I guess I was in product management before the title existed to some. So I started off in development as a developer. And I recall being really frustrated. I was like this kind of B minus developer. I was above average, but it wasn't, I wouldn't say that was my super strength, my superpower. But one thing I would do is I'd build products that, that would get effectively, I'd get paid for, but no one would use. And it really fascinated me. Why are people paying us all these products? It would get used, but not to the degree I expected and wanted. And it was, it was the days of let's write a, a massive spec and let's build to the spec and let's deliver to the customer. And then they don't really use it. And so I was always drawn by that. So in the end, I would just get out of my cubicle desk, start speaking to customers myself before I started coding. What probably actually transformed And so that was my path, my journey. So at the time they didn't have the term PM, but business analyst it evolved into. And then uh, PM ended up being project or program manager. And I would say at the time, early 2009, I joined a company you may have heard of called Skype. It used to be a yeah. point. So I joined the Skype and I would say that's where the PM craft really evolved and shaped. I was at Skype and thereafter Microsoft, we got acquired for around seven years. So I got massive exposure into what it means to do B2C with hundreds of millions of users. And back then we were the biggest install software at the time. Yeah, that was the thing. Install install software. software. Yeah, I know the term. So that was the thing. And of course, after the acquisition with Microsoft, I moved much more into B2B. So I started working with a larger segment. We had a product called Link. So Skype for Mac, it was, Skype for Mac was the platform I used to work on the Apple suite of products. And we developed Skype for Business. That was a kind of the rebrand of Link that eventually evolved into what you now know as Teams. So got involved in all of that. That was great, great experience working at effectively a startup and seeing that all the way to a company with 150, 200,000 people. But of course, I got bored of corporate life. And this, I moved to a, a startup called Blink here in the UK. 
And that was around supporting at the time in the early days, it was this enterprise messaging ended up being a tool we developed for frontline workers, in fact, to develop effectively an interface for folks that generate the frontline, don't have access to information like us, college workers here. And then if I fast forward, I moved to, prior to my role here, but at Pipedrive, which is a European-based CRM product yes. in US, South America, in Europe. So I was a CPO there, so managed a team of PMs and designers. And yeah, that was a fascinating journey going from a single product to a portfolio of products. And, and then at the beginning of this year, because we got acquired at a certain point by a private equity firm, at a point I thought, mm. let's start thinking that after about three years, decided to move to where I am now, which is Airbase, which is in the tech space, which is new to me. I joined in February and I've been loving it ever since. So there I'm VP of product and decided to downsize. I think Pipedrive got to around a thousand folks. So I joined Pipedrive were about 250 or so people. And uh, yeah, this, and, and now I'm here talking to you, Axel. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thanks for taking the time to share your background and trajectory so far. So Airbase, yes, welcome to the fintech family. I've done fintech for a while. It's a very interesting space, a lot of growth in general, which is interesting as a sector. And I initially reached out because I saw this talk that you did about something you call value stacking. Before we deep dive into today's topics, do you want to tell us what value stacking is? I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, definitely. I would say definitely check out the video. You'll see it on YouTube, probably go through that in more detail. But in in the show notes. Yeah, the essence of it is, I think it's a struggle that most PMs have, is there there are so many things you can do. There are so many problems you can solve for. And uh, the heart of the framework is around looking for not just things that add value to your product or additives, but look for those multipliers. So look for things that if you can sequence the right set of opportunities in the right way, that you can significantly multiply value and deliver more exponential growth. If you're, if you're at the stage of the business where you're beyond fast growth and you're looking at developing high growth is thinking about the opportunities that are available to you and how you sequence them. So that's, it's a useful, at least thought exercise to test that you're working on the most impactful things. Thank you. Yes. Again, if you are interested in learning more about value stacking, please head to the show notes. I've put the link towards the video of Chris doing a talk about value stacking. So you're talking about these high growth environments. What are some of the advice or things you've found to be helpful for product managers so they can thrive in these kind of environments? Yeah, by the way, most advice I'll give comes from, from failures, I think. Like most PMs, I found myself in a situation of relatively high burnout, especially if you're a type A personality. I wouldn't necessarily describe myself that like that, but if you're a type A, this will resonate with you more, which is there is always more work to do than you have capacity to do. And you feel like you need to do it all. And that's something that I really struggled with. And at a certain point, I think I declared PM bankruptcy which is that I can't do all of these things. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, is that just me? It's a common trait. And I think we beat ourselves up too much over this. And one really 
important principle I set for myself is I'm just going to have to let some fires burn. And it's quite interesting because we always hear about focus and it makes sense. You find something, you focus on it. But what people don't really tell you, it means ignore other things. Imagine you literally see a fire and yeah. I tell you, Essa, can you just ignore that fire? It's very hard because you just keep, you're just going to be distracted all the time. No, but there's a fire there, Krish. I need to put that out. It is super hard. And this reminds me of you, this very popular meme on the internet of this dog sitting at a desk and the whole room is on fire. And I think this is the life of a PM. Like you're there and the world around you is burning, basically. Yeah, it is. And that's what is interesting and yet so challenging. As PMs, we love to solve problems. I love to solve problems. And it's very hard to see a problem and just ignore it. And... To be effective, sometimes you really have to, because when I'm saying, Axel, ignore that fire, what I'm saying is, Axel, look behind you, there's a skyscraper on fire, actually. And you look around, and go, oh yeah, you've only got one hose, so you tell me which one you're going to put out. And then you have to reluctantly look at the small house that's burning and point to the skyscraper. And there'll be people in your work life that will be screaming for attention and asking for help. And you're going to have to ignore that for a while because actually solving the bigger problem is going to be more impactful. It's going to have longer term, higher value. Have you seen this being more true in certain environments? So large company versus smaller company, growth stage? Yeah. What you find is that it's actually more about the number of touch points you have. So the more voices you hear, the higher perception at least you have or visibility even of these fires. And so I think the larger the team, the larger the company, the more you're probably exposed to this to some degree. And so it still occurs because even in a startup, you're still speaking to a multitude of customers. You're probably speaking to the leaders of the business. What they say carries a fair bit of weight. It definitely occurs in different forms and fashions, no matter where you're at. But I think the more touch points you have, the more you're exposed to this. The life of a PM often is to say no. Yeah, sadly. <laughs> yeah, a well-articulated no, hopefully, or a not now. And often what I find is, framing it that way, is, listen, you tell me, these are all the pain points that we see. And this is where we see the biggest pain. We believe that actually we should ignore this one and focus on this. And that becomes a useful conversation when you start comparing, contrasting which challenges you should address rather than just playing favorites and say, no, but <laughs> let's do my thing. What are the customer's biggest Yeah, ones? exactly. So what is going to drive the most value for the business? And I think I can definitely relate because I've been in situations this kind of, but throws me back to my time when I was looking at the mobile platform at Barclays. It's such a high intensity touch point because there's so many 24 million customers in the UK, half of the adult population has a relationship with Barclays. And we had back then 6 million monthly active users on the mobile app, people doing their day-to-day -day banking. And in the digital team, mobile banking was the thing, was it. Everybody wanted a slice of mobile banking. So everybody just came to me and people in the team asking, can we do this? Can we do that? And you're like, wow, how am I going to deal with all of these requests? And some of these people are even coming with the right business cases and the numbers and you're like there and 
to be fair, it can be quite overwhelming. So I remember one of my managers back then told me at some point, you've got to do two things. You've got to look at what are the you know strategic pillars the company set for this year? What are we trying to do from a business perspective? And the second thing you also want to look at is right now, think about your end of year annual performance review and think about how this conversation is going to go. And these two things should help you prioritize. And you're right. There was a lot of letting a lot of fires burn back at that time. I can definitely relate. And you're absolutely right when you say it is not easy when somebody has come to you asking for help to some effect, let them down basically, because you've got to prioritize and that's not easy. It's not, and not everyone's going to understand. And so that's why I think telling people to focus, uh, it really simplifies what you're trying to do. Because what you're actually trying to do is to some degree push aside everything else. And there's a lot of energy sometimes that's involved in doing that. So letting fires burn and prioritizing, definitely, I would say, and I'm sure you'll agree, like one of the key traits of a successful product manager, what are some of the other things you've seen to be true of really good product people? I think I would say... There's no single great version of a PM. I think they come in different flavors. When you look at the stats, and you probably see this yourself, Axel, you work with a lot of companies. How many product initiatives actually succeed? If I asked you, in your observation, like how many actually succeed? And you less, can, less than half. Yeah. And anyone, you can use different measures of this. Did it make money? Was it delivered on time? You can have different measures, but you will have a sense of this. We put all this energy into something and how often do you succeed? I was digging out the data on this anecdotally and then over time, being in time at Microsoft, because all these companies have been doing their own research when they start digging into initiatives. And it is shocking. It's something in the region of give or take. There's a range somewhere in the region of 50 to 80%, but on average, let's just take anecdotally 70% fail. So Think about that. So 70% of all the company's energy is a complete waste of time. Like just digest that. So all of that energy, most of it's completely wasted. So like really understanding how to derive success. And often that is measured by let's move fast. Yeah, let's move fast in what direction? Because if you're just going to run fast off the edge of a cliff, Great, you just got there quicker. I think we sometimes get a little misled when people use the term agile because often it's just referred to as speed. Yeah, but for sure, there's speed of learning. Absolutely. But there's also the question of, do you even know what direction you're traveling in? Because running up a ladder, if it's leaning against the wrong wall, then that's not useful. Yeah. That's one kind of trait I would say in PMs is their ability to actually um, increase that percentage, let's say. And sometimes you don't have to start fast. Maybe you start slow and then move faster. And again, another principle I think about here is I found it easier personally, not to think about success, but to think about how not to fail. What's the, what's the main difference there? The main difference is I don't always know how you're going to succeed, Axel, but I actually do know the many ways that you're going to fail by removing the hurdles at Mm. each stage. So you're running. And if I remove each hurdle one at a time, your chances of success have now grown massively. 
Yeah, you're increasing that, you know, probability of success. Correct. Yes. And I think using that principle and what I do is I actually, I just pick off really the likes of uh, Marty Kagan. I was fortunate enough back in the early days of production, sure I, I was trained by Marty Kagan back in 2010. And yeah, uh, a great guy. Great guy. And he exposed in his training and in his books since then is thinking about the really what I think of as the four risks. So he talks about that as desirability, usability, feasibility, and business viability. Now you can use different versions of this. And I think you should evolve that for whatever works for you. But that's a really good starting point is I actually implement this in the form of product reviews. And what I often do with my teams is firstly, identify the things that will have the most impact. So we we take that 80-20 approach and we do decide to let some fires burn and that tell my team, ignore all these other things. We're just going to focus on these. We believe this is what's going to have the impact. This is the hypothesis behind each one. Let's test that hypothesis. Sure. Validate that with customers. And there's forms of customer and market research we do to do that. And once we do that, and that's a big part of understanding the risk element there, but uh, we run these regular product reviews whereby we assess Okay, let's check the first thing. Does anyone want this? Is this truly a problem people want solving for? And sure, there's the early research, but we make sure we, with a certain rigor, ensure that we're focusing on things. Of all the risks, that's the most important. Does anyone care? So this is the desirability slash value risk. Yes. Is the market asking for this? Is there a pain large enough? And if we solve this, will this bring value to the company? Totally. Yeah. So before you even look at feasibility, before you look at usability, ignore all that. Is this something someone wants? And, and we'll go through a number of cycles. So there are a number of methods you can use to do that, but we'll spend more time than is probably that most teams might do actually on that. Rather actually go, sure, you can say, go, go slow, but it means no, actually really validate that fast. And I remember working with one team, we had a PM, an engineer, and a designer. And I said, you guys, you know what you're going to do? You're going to be researchers for the next few weeks. And I remember the engineer being really frustrated saying, listen, this is a waste of time. I could just be coding right now. I said, okay, let's talk in two weeks. And she said, okay. I said, I actually came back and they came back. I said, but what did you find in your conversations? Which segment did you target? What are the conversations you had? We, do, we talked through the script that they should go through. And I said, was that a waste of time? And she said, you know what? That was incredibly useful. I often find myself coding and ask myself, wait, is why, why actually, are we doing this? Yeah, why, is this a problem? What is the problem? And she said, but now it's in my bones. I know what yeah. this problem is. I am. She's been the PM. And so everything thereafter became super fast when they came to execution. Because they natural, becomes organic. Very organic. And so they now have a common language. They know the problem in their bones so they could move very fast. Do you feel stuck not knowing how to tackle a problem? Are you looking for a solution to help your team members grow in their craft? Either way, check out panache.io. 
Panache works with product leaders to bring expert insights and proven frameworks you can use to truly deliver impact in your role. Companies like Atlassian, Content Square and Miracle all choose Panache to provide the right level of training and coaching for their product teams so they can perform at their best. Whether you're a product leader or an individual contributor, head to panache.io, book a seat to one of our many programs and raise your product game today. Check out panache.io. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O. I love the way, I love the way Teresa Torres talks about this. She, we had the chance to have Teresa on the show and she talked about how exposing the engineering team to users and customers' reality is one of the best things you can do because a developer makes tens, hundreds of micro decisions every day in the way they code, in the way they ship. And their ability to infuse these micro decisions with the customer's reality is what makes for the best product you could actually have. And that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, definitely. Obviously, a lot of what Teresa Torres says, I think, resonates with a lot of us. And I think people really find it challenging sometimes to implement this because not everyone gets it. If I go back to this with the product reviews, really test on this, the value piece, the desirability piece. And then we get the team to think through what the plan is. So the strategy piece, Kate, there are quite a few problems here to solve. How do we stack those problems? Which, what's the first piece that we're going to bite off? And the validation, they come back with that. And this is the going slow bit because you're understanding the problem. You're understanding which part of this problem do we tackle first and actually get feedback from that customer profile, that segment that you're targeting. And then during these reviews, typically these two-week check-ins, we go through that series. So we understand the problem and then we understand how we plan to execute. And then we run through actually what the solution might look like. And so that gets validated too. Again, actually not a line of code has been written at this point, typically, because you can do a lot of this validation very quickly. And then the developer in this case, she can decide, you know what, actually I have enough here to already start going. So We've gone through the, the piece around this is just, oh, this is a problem. We understand which problem to solve for. And then we go into the usability piece. So we validate that. Of course, there's the business viability piece. Now we test us. Typically, this is where we might get someone from the go-to-market teams to ensure we think around mm-hmm. things like pricing and packaging really early on. Yeah. So we might have a PMM, for example, that's tied with the team. So that could be the fourth member of the team. It's starting to think about that concurrently while the team builds a product. And it's really interesting because you want to almost have all of these conversations up front. And I think that's really good practice. And bringing in subject matter experts or really building the cross-functional aspect of this collaboration, I think, is super powerful. A lot of what I see in across many companies, earlier you were talking about having clarity on what it is we're doing here, whether it be for developers or product managers or designers, whoever in the team, a lot of companies out there, and you'd be surprised, and I'm sure you probably know to some extent, a lot of companies out there don't even have clear visions or product strategies or people are just like coding and shipping stuff. And I think- Yeah, because that's what you, that's what's visible. Yeah, exactly. And that's how you measure progress. Exactly. <laughs> At the end of the year, You'll get to your performance review and Teresa talks about this as well. In, I think in the first chapter of Continuous Discovery Habits, she talks about 
how the world is built this way. The world is built in a way that at the end of the year, people, when they do that, your, your manager does your performance review, he or she will say, what have you shipped this year? And nobody's going to say, how many discoveries did you leave this year? Or what did you learn this year? Or how many failures have we avoided this year? People look at what have you shipped? And I think this is what, this is the lesson people take out of this is for me to be successful, I need to be shipping stuff. Sure, you need to be shipping stuff, but you need to be shipping stuff that's valuable and that's going to drive value massively for the company. And one of the things I find super interesting in having these conversations super early on in the product reviews is that you are bringing the team together to tackle this. It's about knowledge. You're raising the level of knowledge across the whole product organization. And if you bring more people in the product reviews, like people from product marketing, people from research or customer success, then you are raising all of these people's knowledge at the same time. And I think that's super interesting. One of the things I don't get, and there, there are reasons for this, you might call them excuses, but I don't understand why there is such a division of tasks and responsibilities in a lot of product organizations. I will regularly speak to people who will say, oh, but we do this big four risks thing because we've read Marty Kagan's article on the SVPG blog, but I do this and then the designer does this other thing and then the user researcher does this other thing. And then at some point we all come in a room and have a conversation about it. So it just doesn't make sense. What's your view on this? I think at a certain stage, you can, you have all these people with different skill sets. It's how you bring them together to be impactful is the trick. You have these different ingredients and you can mix them in the wrong way. But yeah. I think the important part here is you have a team that owns the problem and owns delivering the solution, right? But you then also have a group of people that can guide them. And that's where injecting them into the product reviews is important. It's like I told you at the beginning, we had an engineer. She was doing PM work. She was a researcher. We had a designer. She was also the same. No, you, we're not going to segregate this out. You're going to go out there and do this. Do you need help from a researcher? Sure, we can give you that. That's what we did. They were coached in that. When you're building this out, do you need help in maybe another space around how we think about pricing and packaging? We'll provide you support in that. But we need a core team that owns this from beginning to end. And if you're going to have a level of accountability and having that depth of understanding of the problem, you want to have a relatively long-lived team that sees this through from beginning to end. This is not a game of a relay race where we're passing right, baton right. from one person to another to another. Which I think a lot of companies do. And this is where there's a lot of knowledge and information lost from a number of handovers. People don't have ownership. And I think something you mentioned that's really important is how can people collectively own this from start to finish versus each person taking their little slice of this work and figuring it out and then coming back and trying to mush it back together? Sometimes, to be fair, sometimes it's very hard because you haven't been given that empowerment because you're like, no, you do this. Another team is measured in a different way. Do that. There's another team measured in a different way. And so sometimes thinking through thoughtfully how these incentives work is important for leadership to get involved in. But I have found, at least in my observation, is it's much more important to give them a level of accountability and ownership, much more than do we have necessarily even the best people on this. 
because there's no point having the best people on this in, in, and fractionalizing their work. That's just yeah. not useful. The power of the single team is way more useful. I find. You talk about these product reviews. Can you just give us a little bit more detail around how do they run? Who leads them? How long does a product review last for? How many topics are you going to talk about in a product review, etc.? Absolutely. Yeah. So what we do is, and run this in different ways, but in essence, it works like this. Firstly, ensure that we have at the very least three people that are represented there, which is the lead PM, designer, and engineer, because you need to be consistently exposed to this. And just to be clear, is this, if you have multiple squads, you have multiple times these three people or how does that work? Let's take an initiative that just has one squad working on it. You will have... Note three, if you're saying that, no, this might be an initiative that requires multiple squads, then we will have the initiative owner, in fact, there. Not every single So the squad. product review is per initiative? Correct. Okay. Correct, yes, not per squad. So in some cases, the initiative and the squad are one-to-one. It's typically what I sometimes refer to as a squad bet. There's something that the squad can own completely. Other times it might be a strategic bet and it's an initiative that's uh, span uh, multiple squads. Okay, look, get a DRI, someone who's directly responsible for that initiative. Make sure you have a named person and then I want a representative across that board of typically product design and engin- engineering. For those listening, I just want to clarify DRI, directly responsible individual. That's right. Yes. And then so we have them there. And before the session, I actually ask them to highlight all of the key risks. So they write up a document, a pre-read, and it highlights, this is the problem we're solving for. This is our hypothesis, maybe the opportunities available to you. And this is a list of all the risks that we foresee. And already that's quite powerful because it's forced them to think about these risks in advance. And so you might think to yourself, that's like a pre-mortem maybe. Yeah, sure. Pre-mortem is just the thing that you do before you start an initiative. This is ongoing. This is constantly reviewing. And again, as I said at the beginning, we're not looking for how are you going to succeed? We're asking the question, how are you going to fail? And this is, this is building a weekly habit, bi-weekly habit. How does that work? This can vary depending on the initiative, but typically I would say anywhere between two to four weeks. You want this to be constantly, you want this muscle to be constantly there so that while the team get involved in what they do, typically building, very easy then to forget the risks. You start building because it's easy. It's what you do. It's what you know. And then to come back and go, what are the risks again? And I've been to some of these sessions, by the way, where you'll have 20 people on a call and each one is highlighting, this is like a pre-mortem and they highlight all of these things, all of these risks. And then you see a list of 20 things. And, uh, and they all measure it. They do a score, likelihood and impact and all of this. And then I'll ask, this is all great guys. But if you just had to say the one thing that's going to just one, that's going to just screw everything up. And then this one person shouts out, if you have to really point to one, it'd be this thing. And I looked down and said, but this guy's, none of you voted for this one. Just one guy said this, his depth of knowledge in this space counted. No one under, understood the risk. He explained it to everyone. Then everyone said, yeah, you know what? That, that actually is the most important thing. I said, that's what we need to be focusing on. Then. All this scoring is just bullshit. This is the most, this is the risk that we need to focus on. Let's do that. And so having the team really talk this through 
This isn't just a ceremony and really think through those. This is very key. You talk about the ceremony, but it's really important to create the time and space to actually have the conversation. Yes. Because otherwise people are running around trying to put out some fires. Yes, they are. And it's important to continue those conversations. So that's why I don't think about this as a pre-mortem. It's actually a very deliberate exercise of really focusing on what are the risks that actually refer to how viable the solution is. Is this, is this really an impactful problem that has a high willingness to pay? Because that's the other thing is there's a problem, but actually everyone will tell you there's a problem. But when you ask them to pay, eh. Now, of course, this may vary if you're in B2C versus B2B. I'm a B2B guy now. So that's a big problem. Of course, in B2C, it might be quite different. It might be that you want to get, get a lot of users and maybe there's, you have an advertising model. So actually, that's fine. If the willingness to pay isn't there, but you have a high usage, but a high opportunity to, to serve ads, that might work well. In B2B, that's a very big problem. Everyone tells you there's a problem, but uh, if you ask them to pay, then no. Not interested. We asked that up front. What's the willingness to pay for this? How much would they pay for it? And if they're not willing to tell you that, it probably isn't that big a problem that we should just not do this. I think it's really interesting, like this shift of paradigm from looking at what do we know and some of the things that we want to tackle versus looking at what are all of the reasons this thing is going to fail. And I can think of a few examples on the, off the top of my head of situations I've been in where we were working on some business critical stuff and thinking about it in this way would have saved us a lot of time and stress. Yeah. It would probably have saved you 70% of your time. Yeah. yeah. Dana, because 70% of what we do is wasted. Can we bring that, even just bringing that to half is actually a big deal. To suddenly go to, wait, half of what we do is impactful? Yeah, that's, that's actually... And it also goes back to the very first thing we were talking about around letting fires burn. And the tool this job sometimes takes on people, it's a tough job. You were talking about yes. burnout earlier on. If as we grow as product people and improve our practice, if we can find tools like these and new paradigm shifts that can help us have a better life as product managers, I think we'll take it. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard because it's not just something one person does, it's the collective. But once you get that, it's very impactful. And yeah, just going back to the brass tacks of it is typically get the team coming in. They often find it a relatively painful experience, by the way. And what I tell the team often is we're just front loading the pain, guys. We're yeah. getting have pain. Let's just be clear about that. Whether it's at the beginning, middle or end, typically it's at the end when you realize that we work here on the wrong problem or we didn't build the right solution. Let's front load all that risk because often what we're doing is we're constantly looking for failure. And in fact, we bring into the reviews people that have no knowledge of what they're doing. So on the one side, it's useful to bring in experts. On the other side, what if you bring in someone who doesn't know about them? Now, why is yeah. that useful? Because they're the ones that ask all the stupid questions and stupid questions in a product review are very useful. And this brings me up to this other topic, which I'm personally very passionate about. You talk about the fact of having people come in and talk about what can go wrong. And for a lot of product managers out there, that's not an easy conversation because 
we are not necessarily trained or live in a world where talking about things that can go wrong is the norm. And to me, a lot of this, like the capacity to have these conversations internally is about creating psychological safety. How do you create the environment where people can have these conversations? How do you ensure that there is enough safety for people to open up and actually say, guys, I'm not sure about this thing that I'm doing. I think there's huge risk involved here because of X, Y, Z, et cetera. Have you gone about this? The first thing is that for a lot of people, especially PMs, product teams, our identity is wrapped in all of this. And so of course it's hard because we're literally questioning what we are doing and, and also we love what we do. So there's so much joy in the building process itself. We sometimes forget, is it the right thing to do? Are we building the exact right thing? And so understanding the problem is very key. But going back to your question of how do we create that level of psychological safety is the first thing is managing expectations up front for the team. So I actually spend a lot of time, the first product review in context and why are we doing this? And by the way, it is going to be painful, but in a good way. Think about taking lots of jabs rather than getting the disease at the end. So, so there's that. And the other is we actually get, I'll have other team members join, like people from other teams. Like I say, having people who don't know too much, bring them in and let them observe this. And actually I will, I will really highlight when the team have done a great job in highlighting risks and praise when we've identified something where actually not doing something. As you say that, you've probably just saved us $1 million by doing this. Yeah. Let that sink. Like you've just saved us $1 million. That often is invisible. And so highlighting the fact that every time we're saying no, we've probably just prevented another failure. And it's, that's what's actually going to kill us. It's all of this time sunk into things that have been no impact. So yeah, that's what I try and do effectively is make it more visible, measure expectations with the team that this is going to be a rather painful experience. Showing value to other team members by saying, actually, you're, the, what you're bringing to the table, your superpower here is ignorance. And actually, you're, you're trying to, I don't want to call it catch the other team out, but it's really, you're going to see things that quite frankly, after a while, they get, the team's going to get blinkered on. And I'll tell yeah, the team, they'll get blinkered that, listen, that's natural. That's what happens. That's fine. And we're here to help you to remove those blinkers constantly. And then with a team to say, really, we are here to reinforce, we're here to help remove these obstacles for you. Mm. And that's why you feel this pain because we yeah. are going to keep inoculating you until we've actually removed all those barriers. And then, and then the last piece is praise, actually yeah. praising when they've identified risk and when they've saved a ton of time and a ton of money for the organization. Brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing these insights around product reviews and managing risks and how do you build psychological safety in cross-functional teams. Before we wrap up, I want us to talk about our next segment, which is my favorite segment of the show, which is the treasure chest, where I ask guests what have been some of the most powerful resources or behaviors or tricks they've used in the past to advance their careers and help them deliver huge impact for the companies they've worked at. Let's start with resources in general. What would you say 
are the most helpful resources you've used to deliver as a product? We have an abundance of resources today. I'm actually quite jealous. Honestly, <laughs> when I think back, back when we started, there was nothing. I could my day. Yeah, like you, people didn't even know what product management was. Quite frankly, people even today, my wife doesn't even. What I do still is still relatively new. Yeah, it's yeah. So she struggles to explain what I do. And but what I find is it's actually the things that are often quite hard to get hold of. And so I found I got lucky. I had a couple of really good mentors when I was younger. I mentioned I got exposure to Marty Kagan, and so my manager at the time was a guy called Rick Ostello. He's he's actually the SVP of SVP of hardware at Google, and he was a great mentor. So. It would often be the observations and the philosophy he would have that would help shape how I thought about things. And uh, I remember, but there was one thing he said, and it, it was, it, you could have almost just ignored it, which is, he said that he finds it's quite useful to just do the right thing. And it really hit me because, yeah, you should just do the, obviously you should do the right thing. But when you really apply that, it's quite actually hard to do what you perceive to do the right thing and actually to, to at least stand up for that. You have been working with a customer prospect or a segment that you've really understood all of these opportunities. You've mapped it well and the organization or an exec might say, I think we should do X, but at least to give an opportunity to air this. And this is why I think this is the important problem to solve. And to articulate that in a way that they can understand, to articulate it in a way that the business can see that by solving this problem, we can unlock this revenue. It's not the easy path to take, actually. The easy path to take is to say, yes, let's just do what you said. And of course, there are certain times you need to just say, listen, I've said my piece. This is what I believe. So right, they didn't want articulation of it, but sure, let's do this. And I'd like to hear your breakdown of that, by the way. But yeah, just that really stuck with me, actually. Just doing the right thing as just one example. I got to work with a couple of other folks, like uh, you see, he was a manager at Skype as well, but he went on to become the CTO at Twilio. But, uh, you know, what I learned from him was that sometimes just a little bit of hustle. How do you think about how to, how do you think of, how can you decompose problem in a way that gets you to result faster? Level of decomposition. So. Yeah, just generally, and like I say, I got a bit lucky. That was one resource that was quite useful for me. Yeah, it's like it's great to, yeah, have been exposed to people of this caliber and wisdom. Yeah, absolutely. And I think having that in your work environment counts for a lot. Having yeah. it with someone that understands the context. And of course, it's nice to have someone outside of the work context as well. Having yeah. both versions of that is useful. And I think there are a few ways you can tap into that. For me, I didn't really have, besides I had a few mentors, sure, but I would, again, back in the day before podcasts were a big thing, I, I would listen to a ton of them because I would learn so much from people, not just some of the leaders, but some people on the front line who just really go yeah. through the operators. Yeah. Operators, yeah. I think there's some, something you do well in your podcast is let's get down to the detail of, of to the actionable you, stuff. Actually, yeah. What action could you take away from this? Yeah, that's one. I think that's a key one. And I think one way to do this as well is actually to talk to people that may be in an adjacent space to you. So yeah. not necessarily a PM, but maybe someone in product marketing, maybe have lunch with them every couple of weeks, someone in research. It also helps build the relationships there as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just to get, the other thing is helping change perspective, really looking at yeah. things in a different way. 
That's super helpful. Thank you. And what would you say are the key accelerators in your career? What are some of the things that you've had these like flipping moments and there was a before and after? Yeah. So for me, what you're alluding to is these paradigm shifts, that penny dropping moment. And you know, my muscle, what I want to do is I just want to read something, watch a video, learn a thing. I know this thing now and I'm just going to execute it. And that's a very kind of Let's say additive approach, and that's one way of learning. I have found, much like I said earlier, is actually getting that perspective change and getting that penny dropping moment has really helped shape my career. So one of the talks that I did, and I can't tell you that this is something I learned to do. It's something that I failed at. (laughs) It's actually the failures that really shaped my perspective. And it also exposes the areas of development. Yeah. Absolutely. And I can say, again, I talk about this in my Know Thy Competition tool. I talk about our time at Skype. I joined in 2000 and early 2009. The App Store had just come out on the iPhone. If you can even believe that, that was a new thing then. And Skype was huge back in the day. Yeah. If, couldn't live without Skype, to be fair. <laughs> and it was with the one job I had where people understood what it was and loved it. They just absolutely loved Skype. But guess what? In the same year, WhatsApp came out. And then a few years later, we started hearing about this more and more. So that really understanding the strategic moves that made impact, understanding their strategy, understanding where our strategy failed, was really changed my book on how to think about competition and how to think about strategy, because it's interesting because we didn't really think about them as competition. Nokia didn't think about iPhone as a competition because by every measure, it was a worse phone because they thought it was a phone. It had poor, if people forget, the iPhone had awful, to some degree still awful core quality compared to a Nokia phone. The battery mm. life sucked in compared to a Nokia phone. And so they're like, yeah, nothing to worry about here, guys. This is a useless phone. Correct. It is a use, but it's not a phone. So yeah, so a, much more. It's a computer in your pocket. Who uses this for a phone anymore? So, you know, that it's very interesting to think, okay, how do we think about competition? What dimensions are you competing by? So, yeah, I would say accelerating failure. <laughs> it's my advice. If you want to really pick up some of these insights, that's in terms of what's happened to me is I've tried as much as possible to learn from them and take some insight from that that I take with me to my next one. Thank you. And my favorite question, what advice would you give the early product (laughs) manager, Krish, uh, looking back at your career so far, what advice would you give him? I'd give him advice, but I don't think he'd listen. That's the problem. Yeah, that's the problem. I'll try anyway, because the advice I'd give will probably seem the antithesis of what maybe what early Krish would do, which is early Krish want to do everything. Everything, get hands on everything because it was just exciting. So much energy as well. Yeah, you got all this energy and you want to use it. But actually, what I would talk about is just narrowing the focus down. Actually, really narrowing the focus. And it goes back to the earlier point. Easy to say that. Narrowing the focus and therefore ignore other things. Hold in on some of the important things. If I were the important things and focus on those. And the other piece, which again... It's one of those things that I would say is common sense, but not common practice, is actually that depth of understanding of the problem. Our, the one thing that we do as PMs, the one power that we have to have, the one thing we need to know about everyone else is the problem, is the customer, the user, 
and the problem. And you don't do that by writing a one-line user story. You really need to go deep and really understand the context that they're in, understanding things from their mindset, live in their universe, so that when you come back, you can really expand on that and it can help you make decisions much more quickly the team. And sometimes I find that some teams can be quite superficial with their understanding. So getting that depth of understanding is, is not easy because you need to spend time with them. You need to have a lot of conversations, ideally really understand their context, understand their domain, and then everything else just begins that much easier when you do that. But like I Thank said, I don't, think, I don't think early Chris should listen. Yeah, that, that's what you say. Wisdom comes with age. So <laughs> let's let's hope in in the next life, Lee Krish would be maybe a little more inclined to listen. Thank you so much for spending this hour with us. I really enjoyed our conversation. This was super insightful for people listening. Have a look at the show notes. I'll drop in the links for the two talks we reference here. Krish, all the best with the work you're doing at Airbase. It's been really a pleasure having you on the show, and I hope we get to speak soon. Likewise, it's been fun joining you on the podcast, Axel. If you're hearing this, you've listened to this episode all the way. And for that, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite platform. Also, if you have a minute, please consider giving us a rating as it helps other listeners find the show. You can find all the episodes and resources on panache.io slash podcast. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O slash podcast. Until next time.